take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 3 this evening. We will be focusing our time on verses 11 through 26 of Acts chapter 3. Two weeks ago, when we started this series, we examined Peter's sermon, if you want to call it that, or essentially his defense of his sobriety. After Pentecost and the Spirit came upon the apostles and they went out and began speaking and individuals were hearing them in their native languages and an accusation was made that these men are drunk and Peter's like, listen, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Because of the content of alcohol level by volume in what was wine at that time, it is physically impossible for us to be drunk. Rather, what you are witnessing, he says, is this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. In Joel chapter 2, Joel prophesies that the Spirit of God will be poured out in the last days. And Jesus' life and ministry begins the start of these last days. Jesus' resurrection demonstrates that Jesus is the promised heir to the Davidic throne that God has promised to David. And then Jesus is both Lord and God. He is the one who gives the Spirit as a result, the church grows exponentially. You have 120 who were possibly in that upper room to after Peter's first sermon. You now have 3,000 individuals who are saved, who are added to the church. At this point in history, the church is 100% ethnically, culturally still Jewish. And so what they would do is they would behave as ethnically and culturally Jews would do. They would go to worship God in the temple at Jerusalem. They would worship him at the times that would be appointed that as Jew, they would do as Jews. And we see in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John are on their way to the temple for prayer being the ninth hour. Or about three o'clock in the afternoon. And we see even after the Jewish persecution starts, the church still goes to the temple. Paul still fulfills Jewish cultural vows that he makes. And this continues really until the temple is destroyed in 70 AD. But Peter and John are on their way to the temple at about three o'clock in the afternoon. And on their way to the temple, they interact with a man who has been crippled from birth. A man that everybody knew. Because every day, people would take him and place him outside the gate that is called beautiful to beg for money. There was no faking it. Everyone knew this man was crippled. 
And as they are going towards the temple, and he sees them and calls out to them, asking them for money, their response is, we don't have money, we don't have silver, we don't have gold, but we have something better. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And they heal this man. And this causes quite a stir because everyone knows that this is the cripple. And now as the children's song goes, he is walking and leaping and praising God. And we see in verse 11 of chapter 3, the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. Just imagine if somebody does something above and beyond what your expectations could be and you just want to hold on to them because of gratitude and thankfulness. That's what this man is doing. And as he's doing so, crowds start to gather. Why? Because this man was crippled and now he is mobile. Something happened. And Peter, when he sees it, verse 12, answers the people. Peter, we find, is again placed in a position where he must be ready to give an answer to the questions that are being asked. Like we saw at Pentecost. Are these guys drunk? No, we're not drunk. Here's what's happening. How is this man healed? Well, let me explain it to you. And what we could probably sum up in a very short phrase, Jesus healed him, Peter takes from 3 o'clock in the afternoon to when you get to the end of the chapter, in the beginning of chapter 4, it is now evening tide, which I guess we have the technology to figure out based on the solar calendar about what time evening would have been, about 7 or 8 o'clock in the evening. So Peter is explaining what happens for about three and a half to five hours. We're not going to take that much time this evening. It's already getting close to eventide. So we're, we're going to take a little bit less time than what Peter had. But Peter is ready to give an answer to the questions being asked. In Luke chapter 12... Jesus tells the apostles, when they bring you into the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take ye no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say, for the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. And Peter is being able to experience this promise that Christ made directly to him. And this is what gives Peter the boldness in 1 Peter chapter 3 to encourage the believers and to encourage us today, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes when people ask me straightforward, easy questions about the gospel, about Jesus, sometimes there's a little bit of fear that creeps up. Sometimes there's a little bit of uncertainty. 
I, I really don't want to get into a long debate about this, and so we kind of shorten our answers a little bit, but that's not what Peter does. And Peter tells them, he clarifies the origin of this miracle. Ye men of Israel, verse 12, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? Why are you looking at us as if we're the ones who did this? As though by our own power, by our own holiness, we had made this man to walk. Peter begins by clarifying that neither he nor John had the ability to do this. Similar to what we see in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, he's troubled, and he desires for someone to tell him the dream and the interpretation. And Daniel is brought before him and Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, you're going to tell me what my dream was. And Daniel says, no, I'm not. But there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he's going to tell you. Or as we see Joseph answering Pharaoh when Pharaoh had his dreams, God is the one who will give Pharaoh the answer, not me. Peter is saying, listen, John and I didn't do this on our own. Don't think that we're some miracle workers and we can do whatever we want. It didn't come from us. But rather, he goes into a proclamation, a speech about the significance of Jesus' death and resurrection. How is this man walking? We didn't do it. By the way, let me tell you about Jesus who died and was resurrected from the grave. Peter, that doesn't answer our question. But as we see, it exactly answers their question. Starting in verse 13, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied in denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses. Peter starting his answer using a formula that stresses God's covenant faithfulness. The God of our fathers. The God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, the same God who promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that through him all nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham demonstrated his faith following God, the same God who repeated those covenant promises to Abraham's child, Jacob, who passed it on to Isaac. That same God, the God of Israel, is the same God who is working now. Demonstrating that Peter is declaring the same God and the Messiah whom the prophets had proclaimed. Calling to memory to this audience, these Jews, how God had revealed himself to Moses at the burning bush. And towards the end of this chapter, he's going to tie in directly from some of the prophecy of Moses. But in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, 
Verse 15, when Moses is at the burning bush and God is telling him to go to Egypt and Moses is giving excuses and trying to figure things out. God said unto him, God said moreover unto Moses, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. The same God who had, when God is speaking to Moses, promised Abraham 400 years earlier that the Israelites would be slaves in a land that wasn't there for 400 years and now is about to deliver on that promise. Our covenant-keeping God, Peter is saying, has glorified his son has glorified his servant. One of the major themes throughout this sermon that Peter is giving is the initiative of God. God is working, and we see this in verse 13, God has glorified his son or his servant. Verse 15, God has raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 18, God has fulfilled his promises in the death of the Messiah. Verse 20, God has sent times of refreshing. Also, verse 20, God has sent the Messiah. Verse 21, God has promised times of restoration. Verse 22, God has raised up a prophet like Moses. Verse 25, God has made a covenant with Israel. God will bless the families of the earth through the seed of Abraham. God has raised his servant, verse 26, and God has sent the disciples to the Jewish people. And in the short section of verses, Peter is making very clear that God is actively working for the salvation of Israel. And God is doing so through his son, whom Peter is about to nail the Israelites on. You rejected the one that God sent. And we see here the word son He hath glorified his son, Jesus. The Greek word that's used here can be translated son as it is in our texts, but it can also be translated servant. And if we just put ourselves into Peter's sandals at this point, if Peter would have come out and said, to the, his Jewish audience at this time in history, Jesus is the Son of God. What would the result have been? Immediate death. But instead, and I think the better word here is servant. And the Jewish audience, if they hear God has glorified his servant that's going to click into their mindset because of the Old Testament prophecies regarding God's Messiah or God's servant, particularly the servant Psalms in Isaiah 52 and 53. Peter is bringing these Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, the Christ, to the mind of his audience As we see in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 through 21, Christ says that it may be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant. And that's the same word 
that is translated here in Acts son, but it's servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I am, my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry. Neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, in the Septuagint, is where we see the same Greek word combined with the word glorified in Isaiah 52, 13, behold, my servant shall deal prudently and he shall be exalted. Or as Peter says, God has glorified his servant. Again, in the New Testament, Christ isn't often referred to as the servant, but the Old Testament, very familiar Peter is calling these images of the servant of God to the mind of his audience to establish who Jesus of Nazareth is. Who is Jesus? He is the servant of God. What does that mean? He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the one foretold. Why is he doing this to establish who Jesus is? And then how this man has been healed. Jesus is the servant of Jehovah. His suffering and death corresponded to the suffering and death of the servant in Isaiah chapter 53. In verses 19 and 20 that we'll get to the forgiveness that God grants corresponds to the substitutionary atonement for sins that the servant achieves. By his stripes we are healed. His glorification or his resurrection corresponds to the glorification of the servant that we just read in Isaiah 52, verse 13. So as God's glorified servant, Jesus has the power to do signs and wonders, specifically healing this lame man. And the glorification of Jesus by God Peter puts in a sharp contrast to Jesus' rejection by Israel. These Jews are simply wondering how Peter and John did a miracle. But now Peter is explicitly implicating them in the death of Christ. You delivered him up. This Jesus whom God has glorified, whom God has chosen, you delivered up. You handed him over. You denied him. You repudiated him. You rejected him. Pilate, Peter says, was ready to release Jesus. In the book of Luke, we see several times Pilate recognized the innocence of Christ in Luke 23, verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests and to the people, I find no fault in this man. Verses 14 and 15, Pilate said unto them, Ye have brought this man unto me as one that perverted the people. And behold, I, having examined him before you, have found no fault in this man touching those things whereof you accuse him. 
And not only do I not find fault in him, nor does Herod, because I sent him to Herod, and lo, nothing worthy of death is done unto him. In verse 22 of Luke 23, And Pilate said unto them the third time, What evil has he done? I have found no cause of death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Pilate repeatedly recognized the innocence of Jesus, wanted to release him, sought to release him. In verse 16, I will chastise him and release him. Verse 20, Pilate, willing to release Jesus, spake again unto them. You rejected him. You handed Jesus over. You denied the Holy One. You disowned him. We saw two weeks ago Peter's use of Psalm 16. The promise that God makes, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine Holy One to see corruption. Some of the Jews in the crowd that Peter is talking to may have very well been there at Pentecost and heard Peter's first sermon. You denied the Holy One and instead you desired a murderer. Rather than the just one, rather than the righteous one, you desired Barabbas to be freed. You killed the Prince of Life. The word prince means originator or the beginner of life. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us, For it became him, Jesus, for whom are all things and by whom are all things. All things are from Jesus. Hebrews 12 verse 2, we are to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. The divine originator of life, you have killed and Peter is laying these charges at the feet of these individuals who are basically, how is this lame man walking? We didn't expect for you to attack us personally, Peter. You didn't, we didn't expect you to challenge us in this way. We just wanted to know how you did it. What's the trick? You killed him, Peter says, but God has raised him from the dead. Peter's confident and forceful declaration is a clear defense of Christ's resurrection. A claim, God has raised Christ from the dead, that the opposition was never able to disprove. You want to prove that Christ hasn't risen from the dead? Okay, show me his body. That's all you got to do. Very simple. But none could produce the body. So this Jesus whom the Jews had persecuted, whom the Jews had disowned. This same Jesus, by his death and by his glorification, is the one by whom this man was healed. In verse 16, Peter summarizes it. Faith in Jesus. How is he healed? By faith in Jesus. And his name... Through faith in his name hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. This healing is done as the result 
of the name of Jesus. Peter emphasizing that there is power in the name of Jesus. But this doesn't mean that as long as you say something is done in the name of Jesus, that's some sort of magic phrase. As you read later in the book of Acts, you have seven sons of Sceva, or the sons of a Jewish individual, an exorcist. And they tried casting out a demon by the name of Paul and the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, thinking, ah, if we just say the name of Jesus, that's the magic word. And you read through that account and those seven grown men confronting this one man possessed by a demon, and he goes, I know who Paul is. I know who Jesus is. Who are you? And these seven men basically get beat up and flee from the house, bleeding. But this healing that Peter says is done in the name of Jesus. This healing, secondly, is the result of faith in the name of Jesus. The result of a trust in and an allegiance to Jesus, which may cause us to question whose faith was it? Was it the faith of Peter and John? Or was it the faith of the lame man? And the answer is yes. Probably a little bit of both because we see this individual now living, acting as if he has put his faith in Jesus. So we see in other times in Christ's ministry, this man who was sick and lowered down through the roof, if we remember the story, and Jesus looks and he sees the faith of the men who brought him, and he heals the man because of the faith of others. Healing faith is the result of Jesus. Peter says that faith comes from Jesus. And this healing is undeniable. Everyone knew who this man was. And now the healing of this man was going to stand as a very clear symbol. Jesus is the Messiah. Similar to we see how when Christ raises Lazarus from the dead, the scribes and the chief priests desired more to kill Jesus, but now they also wanted to kill Lazarus because everyone knew Lazarus had been dead, and now they're seeing him walking around. So this man, everyone knew it. And Peter now goes in verses 17 through 26, exhorts the audience to repent, to receive salvation through faith in Jesus. This man who you all know, this man who has been lame, has been raised because of faith in the servant of God, Jesus, the Messiah. Peter says that Jesus' death was the fulfillment of of God's plan of salvation. And now, brethren, verse 17, I want that through ignorance, you did it. You did what? You denied Christ. You killed Christ. You turned him over, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. They acted in ignorance. They didn't know what they were doing, and we see even Christ's own words in Luke 23, 34. 
while on the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Because they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they do. They did not understand that this Jesus was God's servant. They didn't understand that he was the holy one, that he was the just one, the author of life. Nor did they truly understand that Jesus' death was central to God's salvific plan. Peter says the mouth of all the prophets have proclaimed that Jesus should suffer. We see this all the way back in the book of Genesis. When we see the gospel being given the first time, Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium as it's referred to. Where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Even with that first promise of their coming one who will deliver, it's foretold that there would be suffering on his part. His heel would be bruised. Or as we see in Psalm chapter 22, verse 1, the psalmist writes prophetically, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from my wor the words of my roaring? Verse 12, many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws and thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. But be not thou far from me, O Lord. O my strength, haste thee to help me. The psalmist foretells of the suffering of Christ. Specifically, the suffering servant psalm of Isaiah 53 he is despised, rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Going then to Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, where God foretells when at the second coming he will pour out upon the house of David, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplications, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. And they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son. They didn't recognize this. They didn't realize that the suffering that Christ did on the cross was part of God's plan. And yet their ignorance accomplished exactly what God intended for it to do. This ignorance, however, does not eliminate 
their responsibility. Oh, you're driving down the road and all of a sudden there's red and blue lights behind you and you pull over and the officer comes to your window and asks how fast you were going. Oh, I didn't see the sign that said this was a 20 school zone right now. Sorry, I was going 80. How is that plea of ignorance going to help? It won't. In the same way, the ignorance of these individuals does not eliminate the necessity of repentance that Peter is about to urge them to do. In the very next verse, verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. This call to repentance that Peter gives is twofold. First, repent. The word means to turn away from disobedience and wickedness. To change one's way of thinking, believing, and acting. The second word that Peter uses is the word be converted. And this word has the idea of turning. So if you're driving down the road and you are ignoring GPS because we don't need our phone to tell us where to go, we know what to do. I think back to almost 11 years ago now, I was up in Houghton, Michigan, up in the UP, and some of my groomsmen and I were grabbing our suits for the wedding the next day, and we were supposed to be going back to the church for the reception dinner and rehearsal. And I had driven that area for like two days, so I knew exactly where I was going. I didn't need that GPS to tell me Make a U-turn when possible. Make a U-turn when possible. Make a U-turn when possible. And then it's like five minutes before the reception and I get a phone call from my nervous fiance. Honey, where are you at? Oh, I'm at this town. She goes, why are you up there? Didn't the GPS tell you? Yeah, but I know where I'm going. No, you don't. Convert, turn around. Adopting a new way of thinking, believing, and acting describes the act of turning away from a way of life that is characterized by disobedience and ignorance and turning to a new way of life controlled by faith and obedience to God. We see this demonstrated throughout the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verse 34 and 35, and Peter says unto this man, Aeneas, who needs to be healed, Christ, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole, arise, make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt in the towns of Leda and Sharon saw this man now healed and turned to the Lord. There was a change in the direction of their life. In Acts chapter 14, after Paul has done a miracle and the people have come out to worship he and Barnabas as gods, Paul says, sirs, why do you do these things? 
we also are men of like passions with you, and we preach unto you that ye should turn, be converted from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein. In Acts chapter 26, when Paul is pleading his case before the governor, he says that he was made a minister to the Gentiles to open their eyes and to turn them. A conversion from darkness to light. A conversion from the power of Satan unto God. Peter says, listen, the same Jesus who was God's servant, the Messiah, it is by faith in his name that this man is made whole. That Jesus whom you crucified. So here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to be converted. And the result of this repentance, your sins will be blotted out to cause to disappear by wiping away. As Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, And you, being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, how by nailing it to his cross. The result of repentance is the blotting out of our sin. Those accusations that are justly against us because we have sinned are blotted out. But not only are the sins blotted out, but also Peter tells of the times of refreshing. The freedom, not just from the sin, not just from the penalty of sin, but also freedom from the burden, the weight, and the guilt of that sin. Have you ever wronged somebody and you knew that you needed to make restitution but you didn't want to because you felt guilty for what you've done? And that guilt just kind of eats at you and eats at you until you go to that person and make things right and the weight of that guilt is removed broken fellowship is restored it's exactly what peter is saying will be the result of repentance and again he uses proof from the scripture in verses 22 and following moses truly said unto the fathers a prophet shall the lord your god raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days, pointing to the coming of God's servant who would suffer and die for the forgiveness of sins. And you are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you, first God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquities. 
he uses Moses. Moses would have been considered by the Jews as the first and the greatest of the prophets, some even revering him as such. And they clearly understood this prophecy of Deuteronomy 18.15, the prophet like unto Moses that would be raised up as a reference to the Messiah. So again, Peter is recognizing where these people are coming from and using what they are familiar with to lead them to Christ. And it shall come to pass in Deuteronomy 18.19, whosoever will not hearken to my words which this prophet, the Messiah, will speak in God's name, I will require it of him by rejecting the Messiah. They are in jeopardy of losing the blessings that God has promised. Moses, the first and the greatest prophet, and then Peter references Samuel. More than likely, this is because the next prophet on the scene from Moses is Samuel. And then the prophets that come after him all pointing to the coming Messiah. And Peter tells them, listen, God is giving you the first shot at this salvation. God sent the Messiah to Israel. But praise God that that offer is not just limited to Israel. That offer has been extended to all of us. What are the results of this, if you want to call it a sermon, this defense of how they healed a man? Well, the response is mixed. When we get to chapter 4, and as they spake unto the people, they're continuing to speak. Oftentimes when we are doing our Bible reading and we get to the end of a chapter, we say, okay, that's it, and the next chapter is a different story. It's the same story. Peter is still teaching, he's still preaching. As they spoke, unto the, he spoke to the people, the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. And how did they respond? They were grieved. They were upset that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection to begin with. And now they're preaching the resurrection through Jesus, this guy that we just killed 50 days ago. That didn't make them very happy. And they laid hands on them and put them in the hold unto the next day, for it was now eventide. It was now the evening, 7 or 8 o'clock at night. So Peter's four-hour explanation of how this man got healed People didn't respond favorably. But there's other responses we see as well in verse 4 of chapter 4. Albeit many of them which heard the word did what? They believed. They repented and were converted. They turned from their sins to the Messiah and the number of the men. So this doesn't include women or children. The number of men was about 5,000. So as we look at this sermon tonight, in this series of acclaiming Christ through the sermons in the book of Acts, what's our takeaways? 
first and foremost, if you have never repented of your sins and turned to Christ as your Savior, today is that day. Don't resist. Secondly, we see through this that God is in control. Everything that happened to Jesus that they're thinking, oh, this is just the way that things are going to be. Things that they were doing through ignorance was exactly what God designed. God is in control and he is working his plan for his purposes. So that means that we should be ready always, as Peter exhorts us in 1 Peter 3.15, to be ready to give the answer to those who question the hope that's within us. Recognizing that, yes, it may put us off guard if somebody just comes and asks us about Jesus. But if somebody does, are we able from the scriptures to give the simple gospel message that we are sinners. Because we are sinners, we deserve the righteous judgment of God. But God sent his son who suffered and died and took the wrath that we deserve upon himself. That we need to repent and be converted, putting our faith and trust in him. The final takeaway this evening is one that I think oftentimes when we evangelize, when we do soul winning, we may seem to miss. And that is that we can give the perfect gospel presentation. And Peter clearly did. You see 5,000 men getting saved as the result of this speech. And you would think, man, this is the greatest gospel message ever. And despite this presentation, what do we see people doing? We still see people rejecting. And as we go and we share the gospel with those around us, sometimes there will be rejection. But know this, they are not rejecting us. They are rejecting their Savior. They are rejecting Christ. But that should not discourage us from continuing to give the gospel to others. To continue to tell the story of Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you for your truth this evening. God, oftentimes it can be daunting to share the gospel message with those around us for fear of rejection, for fear of possibly not knowing the right words to speak or things to say, and yet we have the promises from your word that the Spirit will give us the words to say. We have the charge in your word to be ready to give an answer to the hope that is within us. God, as we give the gospel, at times people will reject the message, and it is easy to take that personally. But God, may we recognize that even a clear gospel presentation, as is done here by Peter, the rejection is not of Peter, but is of you. May we not become discouraged when people 
choose to not repent or continue in their sin. And Father, if there is one here who is listening, who has never repented, who has never been converted, they have never turned to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, they've never had their sins washed, blotted out, or felt their times of refreshing freedom from the guilt of sin. May today be the day of their conversion, Lord. We ask these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.